Here we go. The boys are back. Out, out, damn spot. Out. Oh, Luke, you are quote a thing, my favorite thing. Uh. <laughs> the guy's done two weeks of Shakespeare. <laughs> so, Luke, I knew the this first was coming. Said, I knew this was coming. Did you knew? <laughs> I knew it. I was so excited for it. Have Luke, a Luke, so I've been sitting on some of this information for a while. How long is a while in, in the world of Michael J. Gorman? Yeah, mere minutes. So the last time we talked was about two weeks ago, because then you interviewed Katie because I couldn't come to, couldn't be on that episode. And then, so now we're sitting down, we're recording. We lost our goodwill of having, getting a week ahead, and now we're right back <laughs> to the week of. Oh, uh, yeah. We did it, people. We, we did it. We had one week ahead of us. We were like, okay, yeah, we're taking this off. <laughs> yeah. Peace. No. So, no. but in the meantime, so Monday, May 8th, I quit my job. Heard of it. Tuesday, May 9th, we threw they threw a party for me at Deacon Baldy's. Me and John Clark, who's now a listener. <laughs> Hi, John. He's been there for one um, year. <laughs> yeah, and he, yeah, please. Hey, John. He saw our you old come on the show? coffee mug that I brought to church. Yeah, please. He'll, no, don't let John Clark come on the show, because then he'll replace me like he did at St. Anthony's. And people are like, hey, Gomer. And he's like, I'm John Clark. I'm like, Damn it. And then people are like, how is seminary? And I'm like, I'm not John Clark. So we made t-shirts. That's the, he I've made been here for 17 years. And before <laughs> that, I was a parishioner and a child here. <laughs> I was a child, a babe in your arms. But I, I, I took to work my old ballsy coffee mug. Luke, where can people get the old ballsy coffee mug? So the old ball, the old ballsy coffee mug is actually not available anymore. Dum, dum, dum. It was a one-time offer. What if someone really wanted <laughs> This is from the Patreon. Uh, you can go to Patreon. Anyone who ups their tier on Patreon or anyone who becomes a new patron will have access to brand new merch, which is going up soonish. It's the only time it is available. It's very cool. I need to talk to you about which one we want to use. I have an idea, but they're, they're all the designs are fantastic. Nat did them. I love them. If they want to get stuff, go to patreon.com slash CF and you can have access to stuff in a merch store. Patreon.com slash CF. They are very cool. My favorite thing in there is a it's basically like an old 70s rock version of the Catching Foxes logo. And it says you can't monetize private thoughts on it. <laughs> so which which is, you know, if you ever wanted to have that on a shirt, now's your time. Now's your time. Now's your time to shine. Is it? So, yeah, so we had this big party at Deacon Baldy's, and it was sad, all these people saying goodbye, and it was, actually, it was, it was good fun. It was very touching. And then um, it's been, like, this weird lull where I'm like, cool, I don't have to go to work the next morning. So, you know, stay up late, sleep in, oh, crap, my kids are still homeschooled, I gotta deal with that crap, and uh, I'm like, why don't they get out of here? Gosh, they're old enough to get <laughs> I'm sleeping in. I was <laughs> drinking last night till two in the morning. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't happen anymore with my weak, weak old man body. Was so anywho, it, it was it was so fun, and I go and I help out school play, and at the practice, and I'm sitting there and I'm doing the reading, and there was a mom who's there with me, and we're kind of going through some of the stuff, and uh, and I'm barking <laughs> you, at the boys. Are, are you blocking <laughs> where you're gonna be? Yes. Stuff? So I thought all I was gonna do was help, be like, guys, talk louder, do this, do that, and they're like, well, where do we stand? How are we doing the blocking? And I'm like, blocking? I don't even really know i mean i can figure out what that means but i don't understand like i don't have the visuals for this the lady Stage who runs right? it yeah she is she gets acting she comes from a theater background all of this kids are she has like her grandchild She's what you would call qualified yeah her grandchild is like what seven years old and is you know quoting shakespeare lines and stuff like that i just met her today it's just incredible but i don't know what the hell i'm doing 
this mom is there and we're just here to make sure the kids have their lines memorized they're staying them they're we're going through i'm just walking through the play with them that's all i'm trying to do hey i can't hear you you know like yeah. it's basically stuff like that so then i make the mistake of feel reading. it yeah, i read kate <laughs> you are door <laughs> i read kate text message to us where she said hey i heard your last show here's the podcast called the plays the thing which will be in our show notes um on much ado about nothing she said i loved it it was great and i've listened to this whole podcast so good so I went and I got the podcast, Much Ado About Nothing, and it's four or five episodes. I think it's five episodes because it's five acts. And these people break it down in such an incredibly insightful way. I mean, these are people who live, eat, and breathe Shakespeare, but they also teach it to like middle schoolers. I know this one woman on the podcast teaches it to middle schoolers and high schoolers. So she's, she's also still onboarding people to the Shakespeare life, of which... You know, if you want to do a the Gomer High School book thing that we used to do, like it's it's a lot of the Shakespeare stuff because my only experience with Shakespeare was Julius Caesar in ninth grade, right? So, dude, I I I've listened to the, the five episodes; they're all about an hour, hour and fifteen minutes long, like three times each by myself. I'm like, I gotta go on a walk. I gotta listen to this. I love this so much. I'm gonna go to Walmart, it's like just to get out in the car and walk around because that's how I drive. I get in the car and then I walk around in it. It is incredible. Their insights are powerful. So then the next week where I'm volunteering, I'm sitting there and I'm like, do you, do you understand what you're saying? Do you even understand? <laughs> there it is. There it is. There it is. I'm That's like, no, 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 no. I knew this was like, coming. <laughs> I knew it. You can't help yourself. You cannot. I can't. It's you've a been, problem. You've been listening for two weeks and now you're an expert. I'm not an expert, but I can act like one. <laughs> <laughs> but I am around 10 year olds. <laughs> Oh, man. Mr. Gormley, you know so much. <laughs> Meanwhile, I look at my hand. Shakespeare equals good, right? Like, <laughs> it's so funny. So, but I like love this. And the level, like, do you remember when we did the themes episode on the Marvel, some of the Marvel movies? Do I? I mean, best yeah. time of my life. If I only did the podcast I always wanted to. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> but no, in that, uh, what they do is they talk about things that that I had no idea. So, like, the Renaissance being the revival of classical greco-roman literature okay some of the stuff that was lost during the middle ages recovered once marco polo did his thing and all that good stuff the other fascinating thing is the level to which the renaissance society rapidly tried to onboard themselves with these doctrines and in in britain throughout not just england but the greater britain you know cultures they tried especially to adopt the roman poets so if you want to understand Shakespeare, you got to understand the Roman poets. And it's funny because when me and Shannon took the kiddos to the mothership, uh, Franciscan couple, uh, last summer, I bought, I went to the library, took the kids to the library. I'm like, oh, daddy spent so much time in here on the internet. <laughs> Not looking at books. And that a library is where you're like, Uncle Luke would go on LimeWire and should have been in class. <laughs> Yo, yeah, this is where we had wireless internet back in our day, which is a new thing in our school. Yeah. And we would illegally download music. But they, I bought some books that they were selling, and it was uh, I, I bought like a handful of Chaucer books, books on Chaucer. So the because you had told me to read Canterbury Tales. Oh wow, this mm -hmm. is going all the way back to Gomer's high school thing. So I had Canterbury Tales. I was listening to that during my road trip, and I bought a bunch of books that they were getting rid of for a dollar. Really beautiful hardbound books called oh, like whoa. Chaucer and the Roman Poets, Chaucer and his fellow poets. So um, I have Thank them, you. and I, I I've like cracked them, but I never really went through them. I read it i own it 
but it's fascinating to listen to this podcast and they're talking about like like pythagorean right pythagorean theorem math is everything but math is also music music is mathematical music of the spheres all this stuff but everything is harmony and so shakespeare for his plays for his comedies usually has two has couples sometimes they're they're like romantic couples but sometimes they're not but most of the time they're a man and woman romantic couple and so one involves the romance of love and the other one are the anti-romantics and kateri is one of the anti-romantics and going into it and watching it and you know there's all these different versions of much ado about nothing joss wheaton came out with one in 2012 mm-hmm. and then david tennant and Catherine tate do you know who they are very much so very much so that's the 11th doctor and i believe his third companion so americans knew her from the office yeah, from the office. That's where I knew her exactly. The later thank, seasons of the you. office. Yeah, I know who David Tennant is. Please. So, have you seen their Much Ado About Nothing play? No, but I've read about it. It is so watching middle schoolers try to do it right, especially the witty banter back and forth, and then to watch these two with their supreme comedic acting and all this stuff do it. Like, I, and I found it this morning, right before we left. I like fired up YouTube and I typed in Much Ado About Nothing because now I have to become a subject matter expert. And Kateri and I are like, I watched it with Noah because he always wakes up first. And then I watched it again with Kateri. And we're just sitting there like, like, I understood the play so much better by actors Mm -hmm. acting it rather than just reading. That's yes, that is both are actually essential. It's like if one's king, one's queen. But Shakespeare is truly meant to be heard. Yes. And not only heard, but the acting like you don't even know who they're talking to. And when there was this one scene in the very beginning where this guy says. Uh, it's like these funny lines like he said uh is this your oh here comes your daughter is this your daughter sir and he says uh yes her mother has told me many times so and then the guy says like why did you doubt that you had to ask you keep asking your wife over and over again is she your daughter and he's like but like the conversation that ensues i was thinking it had it was he was talking to totally different people and then when they acted it out you're like oh this is cool because it's a it's a london production it's set in like with contemporary costuming and all that stuff, and they're smoking cigarettes and stuff like that. But it's fascinating because like this is the tradition of London theater and how it is passed down. I bet you could draw a line straight back from David Tennant hilariously acting towards Catherine Tate as Benedict and Beatrice, a straight line back to the play in the Saturday matinee of Shakespeare. Like who oh, the yeah. actor was looking at, who the mm-hmm. you know all of that stuff, and it's so fascinating. Because until you watch it, you don't know. And then the Hollywood version, because it's not a stage acting, that there's an element of, and I, I, I'm not trying to be like a purist, but there's an element of corruption of the tradition. Because when you're stage acting, you're mostly interacting with the audience as you do your acting with the person. And with film acting, you're mostly interacting with the person because the cameras then film, like, you know, you can have an over-the-shoulder camera, whereas the audience isn't allowed to be over your shoulder unless your back is right so yeah, you're always yeah. drawing in and interact and that's what the the theater person was telling you. like remember in stage acting delivering the lines well is the actor's job mm-hmm. and everything flows from that it's not like the emotion on your face because most people can't see your damn face and you know you, but but the kids every one of us and me included when i was giving them direction before the theater teacher showed up <laughs> uh it was <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks, huh? Well, they, they, I had I had to do something. 
They were terrible. <laughs> I kept standing in for them. I'm like, no, you call that a reading your lines, Claudio? Out with you. Out, damn spot. Also, no, I'm just but, um, stick around. I'm, like, I'm just sitting there. I was like, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, at one part today, I sat down with this Step lady one. who uh, also helps. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it was. This lady brought me a chair, and she goes, here's your director chair, Mr. Gormley. Oh and she set it I out, and I go, I oh, it. you're feeding my ego. And so I sit down, and I I have scarves and a beret on. Wearing all black. It's very nice. And then I just yell, act one, scene one, action. <laughs> I look at the kids. kids sitting next to me and I go, I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> I am absolutely a 12-year-old. This is amazing. I'm loving it. No, so like the great thing about going back to uh, experiences that Gomer um never had, the great thing about we, like typically everyone has an experience where there's one English teacher that helps you get Shakespeare. And for me, that was I, I was really lucky to have two. I had my my sophomore, my junior English teacher was the same person. Her name was Mrs. Gamble, one of the greatest teachers I've ever had. She was wonderful, and she was the one who pulled me aside. She goes, "Luke, I don't know what is distracting you. I don't know if there's like a girl or something, but your work is really starting to like to uh, feel. So you need to like reevaluate this like relationship, or whatever's pulling you away from your work." And I was just like. It's Zelda. I'm playing Ocarina of Time so much. <laughs> it's Princess Zelda. She's a damsel that I must fight for. I have a thing where I play it, and there's a tree that died in the beginning. And I, to, anyways, uh, <laughs> left upright. But I will never forget. I think it was her who who said like the thing about us Shakespeare is like this is human psychology. So when you understand I'm a Shakespeare, you understand the dynamics of of the human person. It's all right there. And it's uh, it's a like when you start and when you have like a I'm a teacher or like whatever a po- a podcast a a friend starts to unpack all of the layers that are there within Shakespeare. It is a one. There's a reason why it's the one of the best things ever. It's so good. Yeah, and one of the things that they talk about is how there are like the reason why Shakespeare is a master is because and this is a a, a thing that goes to the book from Matthew Crawford. The world beyond your head, which is you stand in a tradition of craft, right? This is actually why the Dead Poet Society, even though it's a great movie and I love the movie, is actually terrible in its pedagogy, which is rip out everything about iamic pentameter, stand on your desk, you got to feel it, and that's all it's about, and blah, blah, blah. The thing is, the masters are masters because they, ma- they stand in the tradition. They've inherited and received the genius of other people. So they're first informed, and when they deviate from the form, it's because of a reason. And and the one of the commentators, I think it was on Act Four, the fourth episode on Nothing Much to Do About Nothing. She said, "The problem with modernist or postmodernist plays is that they've entirely, or at least tried to entirely abandon form. So th- by intention, mm-hmm. they're trying to be formless. But the problem is you can't understand the genius." Because they haven't disciplined themselves within the form. So there are things that are not recognizable at all. And so it's like a, a hobbyist in their garage, you know, calling themselves a woodworker who hasn't submit themselves to the disciplines of, well, this is how you do this and this is how you do that. And like tools, when, when I, one of the things I love about woodworking is the non power tool version, the hand plane. And you can watch YouTube videos where this guy who's a woodworker, he's like, let me show you how they did hand planing in Roman days. And this is what their workbench looked like. Their workbench wasn't a big, thick, beefy boy tabletop. It was a small bench 
that they sit on in order to work these arm sized planers in order to make the wood the boards flat and do all this stuff. And it was fascinating. Like once you stand in the tradition and you've been informed by it. And again, the 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 truth is the once you've mastered people who have not mastered the basics think that they're geniuses because they want to add complexity. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, stay with mm-hmm. the basics, master the basics. And it's it and it's funny. It's like that's the lesson that keeps being taught to us. That's interesting. But Shakespeare was a master because when he when he deviates from the form, if you've already been informed, then you're like, wait a second, wait a second. So, for instance, there's a common trope that he, he, he the only thing he ever invented was the Tempest in terms of its form. Everything else was borrowed stuff, but his mashing it together and deviating from the form is what makes it unique. So there's woman falsely accused, right? That's a standard trope in these things. And the character is hero. She's falsely accused. They said, but in, in other plays where they do woman falsely accused, it usually is a tragedy and it ends in her death. In Much Do About Nothing, the woman faints, the accusers leave. It's her wedding day and she's accused of being a whore by her soon-to-be husband who then rejects her. Happens. And then everyone leaves and her own father is like, I, I hope you die. Like, I never want you. So just when it hits its peak tragedy, she, you realize, oh, she just fainted. She's awake. And then the friar's like, oh, wait, I have a plan. Do the funeral rites write a give her a tombstone let's pretend like she's dead and all the bad actors will be outed right so it's woman falsely accused she dies oh wait a second it's a comedy you can't have that so she comes back and you know she throws the veil back at her second wedding and it turns out you know like all 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 shall be well but it's fascinating in that the people who would go to saturday matinees for their one penny would watch this and they knew because this was culture they knew mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, look at that twist, right? Look at that twist. That's awesome. So it's like like the superhero genre, and we, we can talk about Guardians of the Galaxy 3 here, but like the superhero genre, right, you have that template, right? You know, you know whatever, the, the hero template, all that stuff. But it's fascinating. Like when it deviates from it, you're like, what? What? And it's so cool to see it unfold. So I'm just, um, I'm truly loving how every time Shakespeare pulls a fast one on you, it's actually because he's doing something insanely profound, insanely. Profound. Mm-hmm. It has meaning behind it besides the trying to subvert expectations, which was the issue with Game of Thrones near near the end. Hey, I'm here to talk to you about net at netusa.org slash apply. So you guys may have heard me talk about on the podcast in the past. That one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't do net. I think I really would. I've loved it. I almost went to Net Australia, I think, or something. It was talked about. Uh, my friend Danielle called it. Maybe Net Island. I don't remember. It was like 20 years ago. Anyways, I have worked with Net in the past for other projects I've been a part of. I've been to their home campus. They're a fantastic organization. One of the most impressive I've ever been with an organization was actually when I went to go and visit Net from top to bottom. Just awesome, amazing people. And they are calling you today to apply to be a Net missionary. If you or, or someone you know could serve to be a Net missionary, please tell them about this link, netusa.org slash apply. The reality is that young people today are growing up in a largely post-Christian culture, making choosing the faith all the more difficult. A vast majority of Catholic youth are disconnecting from the church during their teenage years. Net Ministries is passionate about challenging young Catholics through relational ministry to follow Christ and embrace a life of community in the church. 
That's why working alongside youth ministers, parishes, and schools, net of missionaries help young people encounter the person of Christ through evangelization and discipleship. As a net missionary, you will meet young people who need to hear your particular story. Your journey with the Lord matters. You can be an example to young people of how to make the faith their own, allowing Christ to enter into their lives. Your story has a purpose. The Lord has a call for you. If you're between the ages of 18 to 28 and interested in serving the Lord as a net missionary, go to netusa.org slash apply. That's netusa.org slash apply and fill out an application. Not able to apply yourself? Share about NET's mission with a young adult in your life and encourage them to apply today. That's netusa.org slash apply, N-E-T-U-S-A, U-S-A, U-S-A, N-E-T-U-S-A dot org slash apply. Go check out netusa.org slash apply and and become a NET missionary. This is the Lord calling you to do it. Do it. Luke said so. What have you, is there, is there any like sort of like profound truths or anything that like you've like just for your own life? Like, oh, wow, this has helped me like rethink my own life in this, in this tiny way or this thing here. I had my own experience of that. Oh, with Shakespeare, but I want to hear about it from you first. If, Ooh, okay. If, if, so if you've experienced that. Oh, I, <laughs> I have, but it was 20 years ago. <laughs> I have, and it was 20 minutes ago. <laughs> Equally unexamined lives. No, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But monetized. <laughs> one of the things they talk about is the use of pythagorean understanding in in the renaissance and shakespeare was actively tapping into that. and so the word tap, for tap 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 tap, tap. <laughs> so the word for oh man I'm, I'm already gonna mess it up but the musical thing so you have uh the ratio right with in terms of music and then you have harmony and then you have uh proportion so ratio proportion harmony and ratio in Greek is logos, and proportion is ana logos, and harmony is homo logos. So it's this understanding of the logos is at the core. Ratio, ratio, is where we get our word reason, rationality. In the beginning was the word Jesus. Yeah. So is the ratio then, is that like, it, it's like, is that its truth? Like, like, what is that exactly? No, like, first, like, musical notation, right? Oh, I see. Like, okay, an, sorry, going sorry, up sorry. by an eighth measure whatever the hell yep talks yep, about with me. yep so so the the funny thing is when the, have you ever heard shakespeare in its original language it's been a long time but yeah i heard this a long time ago this is not michael gormley's deep dive recently but like they they've had shakespearean actors who pronounced the english like the english would have been spoken at his day and it sounds a lot like irish mm-hmm. like gaelic going super fast and, and they used to do their plays were like an hour long and today they're two and a half hours right so that's the difference of much ado about nothing you know they would speak so quickly but um, so the actual play was pronounced. And they say this in the podcast: "Much ado about noting. and the word noting can be nothing, which is what the play's about, but also can have a double meaning of noting, as in musical notation, hmm. and like noting, as in write this down, mark this moment. And all three of those, I think they give you like four different versions, but they come up over and over again. All of these things come over and over again in the play. The one of the first thing that Beatrice says to Benedict, the little quick-witted anger hate fest, the love to hate you know thing that's so funny, is um, she said, and no one marks you, right? And she's making fun of like he just said something and everyone walked out of the room and left, and that that kind of like noting, like writing down a note. So the Pythagorean view of the world was everything has to be in harmony, and when people are moral, 
It's not just an individual ethic. It's an ethic of society and community and morality. And that, that, that is true harmony. So the villain would be like the stock villain in, uh, what do you call it? The Dr. Strange in his first movie, Mm -hmm. you know, that guy who's just a bad guy and his motivations are, Oh, there's this, whatever the hell the Dormanu or whatever it was called. And he's trying to bring him to earth. And you're like, this guy was such a stock villain. There's no background. Well, that's this guy, Don John in, in the, in the play. So let me end it by saying Don John is discordant within him. He is discordant, meaning he, he wants to sow discord, meaning to break the harmony because he himself is disordered. And for them reason, and they keep saying that, like, do you love me? Not for a reason or whatever. And they use this word reason often, but for them, reason didn't just mean thinking logically like and scientifically like it does for us. It meant to be in harmony with the cosmos. Hmm. It meant this Pythagorean whole that kind of was the, the Middle Ages view, but it's not like being used with reason or being in harmony with reason means be at one with nature and nature's order as well as what's good and right and smart for you. Whereas we just reduce it to what's good for you or right for you. Do you think any of that, is that any of that influenced by, by Aquinas? Not that it was influenced by Aquinas, but that Aquinas and, and a lot of the medievals embrace that view. Mm, because okay. they see a continuity from the lowest form to the highest form. Yeah. And so for humans, we're the, we're the intersecting point. So we're where the spiritual realities and the material realities meet together in this composite weird thing. That's super fascinating. Yeah, That's so we're the nexus point of creation. So you have the angels that are purely spiritual, which is higher, and then you have the animals, which are purely physical, which is lower. And in the human, you have the rational or spiritual animal. So we're a composite being. And so in the and and this is a very much like a platonic thing, the great chain of being going from the god who is being itself, and then to non-being, which is pure evil or whatever. You know, like you can go through all this stuff. But mm-hmm. the cool thing about this, so number one, it's an explicitly Christian world. Two, it borrows heavily from the ratio of the Greeks, the understanding and wisdom of the Greeks. But what Shakespeare does is when the plot gets underfoot, like, so the play Much Ado About Nothing is about a bunch of lies that are told strategically to sow discord. Well, the lies are actually told in Act 2. So Act 1 sets everything up. Act 2 unfolds it. But everyone, it's at a ball, a revelry. So it's at a dance at Leonardo's house, a rich, you know, nobleman. Everyone is wearing masks. And the thing that they talk about in that podcast was people are wearing masks and you intersect with three different people having conversation. And they're all trying to guess who each other is. And it's like, I'm hiding who I am. So you can't guess who I am. So then what, what do people do when you wear a mask? He says, is you look more intensely at the other features of the person. Like an eclipse, you can study the Corona better, right? So this one woman says, oh, I know you're Antonio. And he's like, I've never heard of Antonio. Maybe I'm imitating Antonio. And she's like, no, you waggle your head like Antonio. You walk like Antonio. Yeah. So it goes on and on. So the reason why it's so fascinating is the play also ends with a dance. But at the beginning, the first, when people are wearing masks, that's where the discord comes in. And so he introduces music, much ado about noting, when he introduces the, the lie that becomes the nothing around everyone is doing much ado. Namely, that hero, the woman, is a whore. Right. And it's all set up in this moment. And it's funny because people are wearing masks and the one person who's not truly masked is the evil villain. But when you don't understand this stuff, when you're not seeing it from this, like, oh, this is the world that Shakespeare inhabited. And this is the worldview that he's imparting 
to Londoners who can make it to the Saturday matinee and have a penny in their pocket, right? They also, to a certain extent, maybe less consciously, but they inhabited that same world. Like, yeah, <laughs> nature, cosmos, liturgy, life, morality, they're all of the same thing. And for Shakespeare, one of the things that remedies discord is marriage. That's why marriage is so important or so destructive in the tragedies like Macbeth. Interesting. Yeah. So because it's social and the villain, he says he has this great line in the beginning where he says, like, I, I only laugh when I when I feel merry and not at some man's jest. I only eat when I'm hungry and not at some man's insistence. I only sleep when I'm tired. He basically he's saying, I only do what I feel like doing. And the guy makes this comment in, in act one. So the first podcast episode on Much Ado About Nothing, he says, a modern person listening to Don John, the villain the like the standard villain kind of absurdly standard villain they would listen to him and say yeah man he's just being real just being authentically mm-hmm. himself and shakespeare thought that man is the most discordant corrupted person so seeing that and seeing how wait wh- why because so he doesn't care about anyone else he doesn't care about society all i care about and not only this but his ratio is off it's off because he is only listening to his lower baser things. I'm hungry. I, I'm I'm merry. I'm this. I'm that. And it's like, but he doesn't care about other. He only he is discordant within himself in his higher faculty. So he con- he uses his reason to destroy other people. So he con- concocts plots upon plots to hurt other people because he can't move beyond that. Like animalistic. I'm after. I'm he, he's yeah. called to I'm something higher. Everyone else is is they are all existing on this higher level where they they have their like. And they're like animalistic stuff, yeah. But they're existing for for the other, which is a deeply yeah. Christian thing, and he's not. Yeah, yeah. And, and it exactly. can be harmonized, and he's disharmonizing. You know what's super interesting about that too is like when you think about like John Paul II's like love being creative, mm-hmm. and like that actually doesn't create anything. It just it just de- it just destroys. Like true um, love is when like things are are created from that. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, I remember my brother was struggling with a. Uh, with a relationship he was in and whether or not he should break up with a girl. And I quoted a line to him from JP2's The Jeweler's Shop. And I said, I go, you know, JP2 has this one question. It says, is love creative? Is it creative? Like, that's how you know if, it, if, it's, if it's real, right? Like, the, he's asked, yeah. like, how do I know it's real? And he goes, ask if it is creative. Yeah. Yeah, is love. And he just looked at me and he was like, oh, okay. I was like thinking you would roll your eyes at me and call me an idiot. Standard Christian Gormley response to most Michael Gormley things, but this was cool. This is cool. Okay. Okay. But yeah, so th- that, that notion of, of logos, analogos, homologos, it's so fascinating because I deal in the logos as my job, right? Like the word was made flesh, word logos. Mm-hmm. And to see how the Greeks made such fervent use of it. But here's the fascinating thing. So the play ends with a, with a, with a dance again. And they promise themselves or they vow or swear themselves to one another. So it's uh, in front of the friar. So it's essentially a marriage as well. But it is fascinating because harmony is seen as something that is simultaneously physical and spiritual. Like when Benedict finally realizes, I'm not going to be a bachelor for life. I am in love with Beatrice. It's funny. Benedict and Beatrice are masculine and feminine forms of the same Latin word, which means a blessing or a good Mm -hmm. word. That once he accepts that, he says to the friar, um, to bind me, right? He's like, what do you ask of me? He's like, to bind me 
or unbind me. Basically, to marry me or I'm lost. And it's fascinating because, like, I, I love this notion because the more you study, and kind of going back to Thomas, the more you study passion, right, the movements of the sensitive appetite towards or away from something, and the more you understand how in the grip of it you are, the more you realize, like, this is what is sowing disharmony in my heart, in my life, in my whatever, right? And petty jealousy and petty, you know, whatever that sows discord, maybe not within me, but in the community, you're like, aha, aha, do you see this? This is what's happening. You've forgotten to use the words of Mother Teresa that you belong to each other, right? We forget that thing and we collapse in on so, it. That's so interesting, like comparing that idea to, uh, I'm thinking of St. Saint Paul VI, goes like modern man pays more attention to witnesses than he does to um, teachers. And if he pays attention to teachers, it's because they are they are witnesses. I think because of the collapse of Christendom, or just, not, I wouldn't even say that. Actually, I don't, I don't want to say it. Actually, yeah. strike that. Maybe that's too broad. <laughs> the, the split of grace and uh, nature in our everyday mm-hmm. lives and how and how yeah. how we view that. The most common objection to God is people say, I just don't see it. I don't see God. I mean, I remember one of the most, the best conversation on this I've ever heard was on a Harry Potter podcast on The Ringer. And they were saying like, and like one person, I think it was like Mallory Rubin, who's one of the main people at the ringer she was like you know they were talking about harry potter i think it was more in her reflection on on the series as a whole and she was saying you know this comes from a very strong place of faith and she was comparing it to like what's hard for her is like and she thinks what's hard for like a lot of people was that like you don't see like she's like i like the idea of it i just don't see it in real in like real life and in the story she was seeing it played out in a very real way and i think one of the one what happens when those two things are then are then split people don't see that that harmony all they see is the discord so mm-hmm. all that you are left with are my own desires and kindness because yeah. everything else just doesn't make sense you have no basis for it anymore our first um, our, our 1st um, premises are off and that's why i think that's why i think um, culture is so important i think about that idea of Harmony and comparing it to that book. Gosh, what's it called? We're, we're, we're going to go into it at some point in time. But do you remember I bought us both copies and we never talked about it? The culture of narcissism. Yeah. Like basically, we have no use for things of the past or things to carry on or things to as, as, aspire or adhere to. So all that is, um, all that is left is ourself. And when you see a group that is so dependent and so ingrained in this, in this idea of we are all of like striving for that harmony and seeing the benefit of marriage for a culture, the yeah. benefit of being for the other. Yeah. It's weird because like a lot of the issues I think we have with social justice right now, these people, like a lot of people want really good things. Equitable pay is a good thing. Wanting to get rid of almost sexism in in the workplace is a good thing. These are all good desires. The challenge is when they are removed from their Judeo-Christian roots. They're unmoored, and it just becomes assertion after assertion. These are my rights. These are this. this well, and, and then you just like have the tyranny of the masses or whatever. Because yeah. it's just it, that's what I think you saw. I think the Me Too movement again. I'm not saying it's bad. I think there are some really good um, things about it. But we can all agree, like. It got a little Robespierre-ish. <laughs> it, it got weird, and that's yeah. not this, and, that, and that happens. That that's that's a part of it. But like when you, that's you know, like I'm a human, I'm nature. But we have no strong ideals that we're that we are actually striving for as a whole. It becomes super. It becomes really um difficult. And I, 
I, I, this is why culture is so important. That's why this stuff really matters because if all we're going to pump into our brains is the lessons of Moana, we're screwed. Because all that's about is just like reject everything and just uh, like I'm going to follow your heart. You, you become the villain in that story, essentially. The underlying moral is the exact same every single time, which is believe in yourself more. Right? That's what will solve these things. Stop listening to other people and believe in yourself. Right? So Moana, tell your dad to shut up. He doesn't know what he's talking about, even though he's the chief of the tribe. Just believe in yourself. Listen to your own interior lights and just believe in yourself. What was it? Cars 3. I haven't seen it, but Dave Van Vickle was talking about how that's the epitome of all things that he hates in the children's space. And I was like, good Lord, what did they do? And he's like, well, they just had this like crappy car face off against these pro Formula One. And it's like, it just believed in itself and beat everyone at the last race. And he goes, so I tell my kids, that's an object lesson. We watch that movie and I'm like, now tell me why this was stupid and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing. It's like, that's the only more. And so for, for Shakespeare, the comedies were meant to be, they weren't meditations on evil. That's more the tragedy. But the comedies often are meditations on love and meditations on human relationships in, and, and where does it come from? And what, what do you look at when you play around with different people's visions of love? Like Benedict wants to be a bachelor for life, says it, proclaims it. And yet every single time he's on the stage, every single time Beatrice, who hates him, is on the stage, all they do is talk about the other, whether the other person's there or not. Constantly bring up the other. And it's, it's so funny. They keep saying this in the, in the play, which I think is so funny, or in the podcast, which is Beatrice and Benedict keep acting like middle school lovers, where it's like, I love you, so I'm going to punch you in the face and ignore you for a month. <laughs> right or punch you in the arm not on the face punch you in the arm and ignore you something deeper going on with that kid but the and and i was like it's so funny because the kids who are playing like the boys you know right this, this is a homeschool thing right and so the boys are so awkward because they don't want to hold the girls hands you know there's a couple of love interests there's a couple of dances and they like they're like i'm awkward my hands are sweaty and they don't want to do it and uh, so one of the moms like i think you need to sit him down and tell my son to just hold your daughter's hand and I was like, yeah, but you know what's funny is Benedict doesn't want to love Beatrice. And then she goes, yeah, so until Act 5, that's on brand, isn't it? And I was like, it sure is. <laughs> Method it acting. Sure Look is. at you. You're, getting people. you're a real Del, uh, whatever the guy's name is who made Method acting big. Del Nord or, or whatever. I forget yeah. his name. So I, I'm going to tie this in the Guardian of, of the Galaxy really quick. So, so massive spoiler. If you have not seen Guardians, turn this off and then come back to it. Or if you just don't give a crap, keep listening. Okay, for one, <laughs> great. Great. I love this movie. I think it might be my top five MCU. I love this movie <laughs> so much. I love Luke James needed Gunn. this movie. <laughs> I love him. I love him. I want to have his children. I think it is beyond wonderful. The more I think about it, I've thought about this movie. I've also listened to some podcasts that point out some great stuff. Uh, stuff on The Ringer from The Ringerverse as well as The Big Picture and then Red Letter Media. There's an element of like of like found family to that. But I also think there's an element of showing you how far a found family can actually go. Mm. And that there is a limit to that. I don't think it's about the joy of the found – I think – I'm sorry. It is about the joy of the found family, but it's not about – how the found family is all that that matters. It's about how other people 
even a close group, even if it is a found on family, how other people can bring out the best in you if they are for you. So I want to I want to tell you something. That's so the end of the film ends with what? Do you remember the end of the movie? Uh, dancing. So they're dancing to "Dog Days Are Over" by Florence and the Machine. He had that scene in mind from the beginning of when he made the first Guardians of the Galaxy. That they would all dance yes. to that song. Yes. That's how he wanted to end that film. So the film is is ultimately about healing. Yeah. Because what's happened is everyone has found the healing or they're going to find the healing that they now see what healing they need or they they have accepted and and they have already found it. Gotcha. Which is fascinating to me. And James Gunn has been very unvocal from the beginning that like he is Rocket and that and that Rocket is him. James Gunn is a Gen X guy, so that means James Gunn has parent issues. <laughs> okay? If there's anything <laughs> we know about Gen X, it's their parents were all divorced, and everyone hated each other. And yeah. so, I mean, watch any Billy Corgan thing, and, like, you'll see it. And it is so fascinating. It's, I, I love, I love, loved, loved this, uh, love this film. There's one line in, in, in particular that is the crux of the whole thing. And then I'll stop and I'll, and I will let you talk. Gamora screams at Peter Quill. Stop! Tr- I can't remember exactly what she says, but she she basically says, "Stop trying to like have me solve all of your like I'm a woman issues for you." Because the idea is like she's not his Gamora, right? His Gamora is dead. He's trying to make act like she's her, and yeah. she's basically saying, "I'm not that um person." Stop trying! Stop trying to like use me to find the healing that you need. Which is when you look at the villain of the film, all of the villains are trying to use others to like get whatever healing or whatever like they think they like they need. So you have the high high emperor, whatever the heck his name is, the high evolution. Yeah, the high evolution. He basically takes creatures and he's trying to become god with them, and yeah. he's trying to he's he's destroying other people to get whatever he feels like like he needs to be whole i love that line you don't want them to be perfect you just can't accept the way that they are yeah. or something like that. yeah and he so basically he goes to like he destroys rocket and all of their mm-hmm. friends he tries to create he basically gives these these creatures life that they would not have had otherwise only to just destroy them and then dis and dis, and dispose of them and and be done with them because he doesn't care about he doesn't care about them where the guardians in that film they're all rooted by their deep care for each for each other and the ways that they care about each other in flawed ways or they're like flawed like you see how hell like nebula is always angry or drax they never really pay pay attention to him nor does nor does he really speak up though either for like for himself so everyone um, thinks he's dumb when actually he's not but he doesn't advocate for himself nor do they ask him you did that and it's not until he finally embraces his role as father and he's pushed by them that he finally becomes unhealed he becomes who he was which is and was a father yeah it is i i think it i think it is a profound movie that is saying a lot. I don't think it's perfect by any means necessary, but I think in what it is trying to say, how and how it says it, and the and the conclusion that it comes to. When I think about what you are talking about, it's about trying to find that harmony, and it ends with I think they realize they can't have they can't have that harmony together. That their time 
together was always a means to an end. But they found a way to be for to be for each each other, but they're not their real family either. Some had to restart because they didn't have a family. But Peter Quill, he leaves. He's got to go find his grandfather. You have someone like Mantis who has was like taken from from her home, has never had a chance to see or even ask, "Who am I?" So she's going to try and find that out. Then you actually have Drax, who is able to finally embrace again his role as father. Then you also have like Nebula, who finds her finds her own healing and can just finally be someone who actually cares for others, as opposed to he could be a a person for good, as opposed to a person who was bred and formed for war. She could be a person who protects, as opposed to a person who destroys. That's kind of her own resurrection. And then, um, and, and then with Groot. And Rocket, they're able to embrace their role as guardians. Yeah. So they'll always be guardians because that's, they don't have, I mean, it sounds bad. Like, it's not that, and I, I mean this in a good way. They don't have anywhere else. They don't have anything else that's true. They have found their um, healing. They can embrace, that's like their vocation to be the guardians of the galaxy. So, like, someone like Rocket will always be a guardian. Guess who's back? Our good friends at Decided Excellence Catholic Media. Decided Excellence is a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. Through local business sponsorship, Decided Excellence is concerned with bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to homes and highlighting the actions of the body of Christ in the local community. Parishes partner with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to produce a monthly magazine that is sent to parishioners in Catholic-affiliated homes in the parish boundaries. Love that. Decided Excellence trains your staff to organize content from, from the parish. And let's be honest, your staff probably needs a training, and you, deep down in your bones, know, know this. But it honestly, shouldn't be that much extra work because someone is already doing this for the bulletin, hopefully. Every magazine's centerpiece is a family from the parish that the parish wants to spotlight. This is also an opportunity for parents. I should add those. Any little side comment is clearly coming from me, not from the ad copy, just so we're all very aware of this. This is also an opportunity for parishes to feature their own original content in evangelization and catechesis and to highlight the various ministries of the parish. There's an extensive Decided Excellence Library, which has articles from Bishop Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, PrimeSoil.com, and much more in the event the parishes need additional content. Decided Excellence does all the designing, editing, and mailing for you. That's got to be a load off of your own shoulders. Am I right, old people in the back? A parish magazine is supplemental to the bulletin. Why it improves the bulletin. There's a good chance I wasn't supposed to read the, the bold part out loud, but here we are. The bulletin is available to people who go to Mass or search it out online. The parish magazine is the only way to reach 100% of your registered parishioners. I actually really love this idea, which is why, why, why we have them. We being decided excellent. Because of our professional design team and production team, the Parish Magazine is superior in beauty and quality. Our magazines are opened, kept, read, and shared. There are parishes all over the country who have created Parish Magazines, and parishioners love them. The magazine communicates the good works of the parish, strengthens community, and has even brought parishioners back to Mass. How to bring one to your, your parish. Check out decidedexcellence.com slash parish and fill out the information f- form. Talk about the possibility with your fellow parishioners, parish staff, and priest. Again, that website is decidedexcellence.com slash parish. D-E-C-I-D-E-D-E-X-C-E-L-L-E-N-C-E dot com slash parish. P-A-R-I-S-H. Decidedexcellence.com slash parish.
Talk about the possibility with your fellow parishioners, parish staff, and and priests. Get on it. Let's let's do it, people. Go to it. You can flip through a magazine to see what our magazines are like here by going to decidedexcellence.com. Again, that is decidedexcellence.com. D-E-C-I-D-E-D-E-X-C-E-L-L-E-N-C-E.com. Seriously, I'm actually, would be kind of fun to do a Decided Excellence Catching Foxes magazine. What would that be? A lot of good intentions. All right. Anyways, thank you to our very good friends at Decided Excellence for sponsoring this here episode of Catching Foxes. And I just think the journey that they're on, I thought it was wonderful. What do you think? I saw it twice. You did? Yeah, once with some friends, and I took Katiri, and then <laughs> I would not uh, take it again to see that movie. <laughs> well, Katiri could handle. It. I would not. We're not going to let Cecilia. It's too much animal torture for Cecilia. Oh, that's true. I always, I always want to like act like she's nine, but yeah, it's violent. I, I mean, I don't think I would want Evelyn to see it until she was oh, thirteen. It's a, yeah. No, I mean, Katiri can handle it. And nineties violence there. A, a it really times. does. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. It was pretty intense at times. Okay, let me just say in terms of form. There was less, like, Marvel got into this rut, especially with the Guardian characters of, uh, in the Endgame and whatnot, of, like, rate when something was serious, and I, th- I think Thor went way over the top with it. Rate when something was serious, someone did a one-liner that ruined the seriousness of it. This movie felt like they would let the serious stuff hang for a bit, mm-hmm. which made them hit the point a little better. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel, actually, rushing away from the it felt more fake than in a comedy action movie than throwing out the line like it, it, it was funny and in this movie they don't do that they let the serious stuff serious they let you know your loving character be alone you know experience his isolation for or his grief of not having gamora be the same gamora and then you know they they let it actually be about 10 seconds before a funny quip is added for the most part. I think there was one scene where I remember being like, ah, they kind of reverted back to the old thing, but it didn't matter. It was so funny. Another thing I thought was the ending, while I liked it, it definitely was a goodbye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And I felt like, I almost felt like I did with the third Lord of the Rings. This is me giving my criticism. Like the third Lord of the Rings movie where it ended like three times, four times, or 12 times. And I was like, okay, okay, I get it. Like now they're dancing. I get what you're saying. I, 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 the second time actually I watched it, I thought, oh, I actually like this more than I did the first time in terms of the ending because I was waiting for the ending to bore me because it's like, oh, here we go, the too long of an ending ending. But then I was like, oh, no, this is actually, it's not bad. This is good. I do like the fact Shakespearean, much ado about nothing, that it ends with a dance and music playing. The last thing I wanted to say about it was the, I, I love what you said about healing and finding like your found family versus your biological family but also it's funny if if i could jump into the mythological critique which is or not critique but view which is like the father figure is always a tyrant right or he's like you want your father like the image of the father is the the tyrant or the benevolent king and it's funny that the guy called Drax the Destroyer becomes Drax the father or Drax the dad. And that, that's like an explicit line that Nebula says in the movie. Like, you're not the Destroyer. You're a father. That's who you are. And I love that line, but I love it how it's this man whose first thing is like, we'll kill anyone who gets in our way. No, we're not killing any. We'll kill some people. No, we'll kill one really 
you know, horrible guy that no one likes. Well, now it's just sad, <laughs> you know, like he's always willing to do all this stuff. So it's like the tyrant becomes the father. You know, I like that, that those roles that become something different. Yeah. I, and I love the movie. I thought the movie was great. The villain was interesting. He was an, he was, uh, I like, you definitely could have spent more time in why he's creating, you know, counter earth and doing these things. And it looked totally silly. The, the animals that he's creating definitely had teenage mutant ninja turtles too. the secret totally. of the ooze vibe. But that's like, it's, it's, he's it intentional. Very 90s it's intentional. Like yeah, yeah. He's very, um, 90s and he's very of the seventies. He's, he's pulling yeah. from his, like he's, I think he's pulling from his like late twenties and his teens. Yeah, this is where he's pulling. And it was from. funny yeah. because, like, but the actor himself was an excellent actor, and I feel like you have a whole string of Marvel, maybe not Marvel, but a bunch of villains that like you don't, you don't care about. Like they're just yeah. so nothing. And he, at least as an actor, made you pay attention to every word he said. Well, and and you see what he wants. It's it's clear what he wants. Yeah, he was a really good actor. All of his. The intensity that he delivered, like that, I think that that one line where where Rocket, when he's like solving these crazy equations, and they sees the rocket and the blue sky, and he grabs his head, mm-hmm. and in a in a in a posture that is like, I own you, I control you, I can crush you right now. And he said these, you know, these horrible things to Rocket, where he's like, I take your miserable little form and I make it perfect. Yeah, like that whole scene, like you were you were caught up in his psychosis, right? Like I loved it for his neurosis. Yeah. Was it Fulton Sheen said a psychotic thinks two plus two equals five? A neurotic thinks knows that two plus two equals four and he's mad as hell about it. Right? He was a neurotic, right? He yeah. like, hated the world as it was. Most, yeah, yeah. And I, I just I'm just like pure like fanboy. I I love a good needle drop, and I know this is kind of the his James Gunn's whole like his whole thing. Yeah. But the uh Space Hogs in the meantime, I just like, you know, could have wept. I think I, I got choked up. The what? It, what? You know, like in the meantime, when I cry oh. for me, I cry for you. Yeah, I don't know that song at all. Yes, you do. I knew these songs the least. Are you shitting me? You don't remember Space Hog? I'm the only on you. Are you joking? Where It was massive. It was everywhere. Are You don't know Space Hog in the meantime? Maybe, maybe I did a little. Did you, I mean, did you get the Radiohead thing in the beginning? Creep? I got the Radiohead thing. I'm a creep. But they played the acoustic version. Not my favorite. Yeah, which is. What are you? Okay, I'm getting so mad at you right now. Round one, fight! No, no, no! Come on, that one is it's, not. It's as good wonderful compared to their. Nah. It's it's perfect. It's perfect for that. It's perfect. It's oh, it's perfect for the scene. Don't get me wrong, but I just I'm getting so angry at you right now, <laughs> Luke. Let me just tell you, the studio is better than an individual with a good. I'm so mad. Round two, fight. Uh, you love. Me. But da, 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 you, you don't remember Space Hogs in the meantime? Anyways, I like that. And then the Beastie Boys, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. The best yeah. fights. It's probably my favorite. It's, again, top three for me of the of everyone in a Marvel fight scene. Yeah. I just thought. I actually liked it. Well, uh, maybe top maybe top four. I would go the first Avengers is just so great. Yeah. Endgame. 
Age of Ultron when they're fighting when they're all there. I think that's just so much fun when it's a group that's that is fighting and then that one. Oh man, I I just you know and I I don't care if um, I don't care if, like Marvel's back or not. I just I really don't care. Uh, I do think it's fascinating. I think the whole thing is fascinating because it just it proves my own theory that the second time is always worse. Everyone who's ever had a had a almost second term as president, it's always gone horribly. Always, 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 always. Anytime you go for round two, it always is just worse. It's all, and this is exactly what's what's happening. I mean, they've had so much crap. They've had to deal with stuff that's been in their own own control, stuff that has not been. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, you know, whatever. I don't care. Yeah, they kept commentaries, social commentaries, minimum in this show, and you got to see characters, characters, and it's like, oh yeah, you know what this is? It's a good story. <laughs> like it's good. It's a good. Solid well, this is one thing that's story. also super interesting too. Is that so? I, when, and I didn't think about this when they did. So okay, so basically, James Gunn does the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Ryan Cougar does Black Panther. I believe that I said his name right. Takito Watita does Thor Ragnarok, which I which I loved. And you see some of the Marvel control, even the Avengers to a certain extent. It's a very much a Joss Whedon film. You compare it to his other. It's. I think it's. It's a. It's a borderline a, a tour f- uh, film. Not totally, but for as much as Joss Whedon can be an odd, an odd tour, I, th- I think it's very much a Whedon film. And you see the control. Not necessarily. They don't really let go per se as much as they say. Okay, you still got to do our thing, but you can do like your do your thing. So they bring on other people for like the kitchen scene in. Captain Marvel, some other stuff where they bring on these directors, it almost like indie directors to do like these films to do their to like do their thing, but they don't get comic books. Yes. So it gets kind of it just becomes stale. Right. And what they have found is they need something to kind of do both. So one thing that, you know, Kevin I'm a fight you said is we are really not very interested anymore we're not going to hire a director to do to like do the kitchen scene from Captain Marvel and try to help them with, you know, everyone else. We're going to try to hire more people like James Gunn who know how to do their own thing, but have an, have a, a solid uh, appreciation and understanding for the comic books. And it's not that you could, but here's the thing, James Gunn, like kind of go back to your point about like the form. He understands these comics. He did Garden of the Galaxy to tell Rocket Raccoon story. That's why he wanted to do it. He saw it yeah. as his own. He was a very broken you dude who's story. found a lot of maturity and and growth over the years, which is what the, this film's about. But he's able to pl- he's able to he understands what he what he has to keep, and he also understands what he knows he's going to change. So characters like yeah. Adam, whatever it's called, is Warlock. Yeah, is complete is completely different as is Mantis and Michael Elmore Rook's character, but he's okay because he understands what he's breaking. Yeah. So I, I just, I thought it was wonderful. I tr- I think it's going to age incredibly well, incredibly well. I hope so. Cause I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the heck out of it. And you know what else I'm excited to see in the theaters? Me and Jaeger are going to see it. Hopefully on Blackberry. I know I'm excited to see that too. Uh, no, the Dungeons and Dragons movie. I've heard it's not bad. And I'll tell you why. When I saw the Chris Pine movie, when I saw the preview, I was like, oh my gosh, whoever, whatever company they hired to do the preview, don't think they did a good job because the reviews are largely like overwhelmingly positive. So the goal is though, I need a nerd who will see it. 
Jaeger is just such a nerd. Have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? No. I I haven't. I I don't think I'd have the patience for it. I just, I had some friends who liked it, but I was just I just never had much interest. So to kind of conclude today's show here, I do have to go. My son, I didn't tell you this, is getting is getting a tonsillectomy tomorrow morning. Surgery's at seven a.m. We got to get there at five thirty. I'm not looking forward to that either, because then afterwards, I today ten a.m. to seven p.m. was Shakespeare class. And then we're doing it again tomorrow. So, yikes. So, I got an early, early, early morning. But the the thing that I oh, totally had an ADHD moment. What the heck was I going to say? Something, I don't know. Luke? I don't know. You were going to What go were you just talking about? Dungeons and, totally and Dragons figured. with Jaeger. We never played uh, it. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> we're back. <laughs> this series that I'm reading, I, I mentioned it last time. It's called He Who Fights with Monsters. It's a 10-book series. And... It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's definitely written by a woke author, which I don't care. I love it. But uh, the whole thing, it's a lit. Deep down, it kills you, doesn't it? Well, when he makes these comments like, yeah, only white people would think that way. And you're like, just can't let it go, huh? (laughs) Just can't let it go. (laughs) No, I can't. I can't let uh, racial stereotyping go. It's still funny. (laughs) Still funny when it goes one direction. uh, Morally (laughs) sinful when it goes the other. For this month. But anywho, his storylines are funny, but it's called a lit RPG. And I didn't even know that was a whole genre, like a sub, sub, sub genre of fantasy. But they're like hella fun. And it's about, uh, I, I talked about it last time, but it's about this guy who wakes up basically and he's like a Skyrim character where he has like abilities and outfits and all this stuff. But the guy, like at first, when I first read him first handful of chapters, I was like, this is dumb. How are you going to pull this off? The plots are phenomenal. Every book. It's phenomenal. So I'm on, I just got to book seven. They're about six, 700 pages long. And I just got to book seven. I, of course, read it all on my Kindle. And I just, I freaking love it. And so it's a Dungeons and Dragons, not really like turn based, but like that kind of role playing game stuff. Pretty soon I'm going to be LARPing to Shakespeare. Can't wait. Yeah, I would love to. We, we really need to get What's Your Name on the podcast and just talk about English stuff. I'm very okay if we just become a podcast that just discusses this crap. <laughs> for goes everything else. that's all I, all I care about now yeah right, anyways thank you to all all of our our sponsors thank you to thank you to net and thank you to decided excellence catholic media you guys are great we have other sponsors coming your boy's been on that phenomenal so <laughs> we got bills <laughs> but uh no but honestly though this has been great this has been fun we're on a roll and we want to thank you guys for joining us again. I'm excited to see where it goes. Sorry about that loud noise. Gomer, I love you. Luke, I love you. Look, an hour show. Look at that. Look at that. All the world's a stage and we're just actors. Let's stay on Shakespeare for uh, for a yes, bit. Please, like, please. What, uh, <laughs> easy, easy. <laughs> we all know what Gomer's O sound is now. Hey yo! <laughs> <laughs> hither and yon, hither and yon, <laughs> hither and yon. That's what they did. J- Joe, call this episode hither and yon. <laughs>